About 60% of us have at least one chronic or serious illness, like diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Some of us have multiple health conditions. So we're talking about 133 million people, including children, diagnosed with some type of incurable condition. And that number isn't shrinking. In fact, it's expected to grow to 157 million. Research suggests that these folks with ongoing illnesses have a lot of unmet needs, physical, psychological, and spiritual. How are we going to meet their needs? And where do people go to get help? Now, the role of palliative care and hospice services are intentionally designed to meet these needs from the onset of the illness through to the end of life. I know firsthand of the struggles these patients and their caregivers face on a daily basis. I'm totally sold out on the benefit of palliative care and hospice services. My name is Dr. Tracy Fasolino. I'm a nurse scientist and a board-certified hospice and palliative care nurse practitioner. I've been working at the bedside for over 20 years, and I understand the clinical management for palliative care and hospice services, but what I really wanted to understand better is how legislation and policies from the past are impacting present-day delivery. Now, this podcast will tell the story of legislation that brought hospice and palliative services into being through the lens of a nurse caring for these patients, kind of a boots-on-the-ground implementation of policy. For Health Affairs, you're listening to No One Gets Out of Here Alive, where we take a closer look at how each of us would want care to be provided to ourselves or to our loved ones when we're dealing with an ongoing illness. There is one thing we all have in common, and that's our mortality. So I'd imagine you're already having some emotions stirring with the use of the word hospice and palliative care. Nearly all my patients say the first thoughts that come into their mind is, am I dying? You know, it's a tough subject to bring up, to talk about, and even do it a podcast on. We tend to avoid the topic of our declining health and death and dying. But the data suggests at some point, we're going to be faced with an ongoing serious illness, which is going to prevent us from living our lives to the fullest. And we might even be diagnosed with some type of life-limiting condition. If we don't talk about our pain and suffering, or what we might want in our last days, we'll miss out on learning about some of the services that are available to us or our loved one. Now, the two dominant methods for navigating through a chronic or serious illness are palliative care and hospice services. Now, this hasn't always been available. It wasn't until 1982 that the Medicare benefit for hospice was signed into legislation. So what was care like before the hospice benefits? Dying in America during the 1960s and 70s was heartbreaking. Cancer, that dreaded disease that would cause fear and an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Our society moved dying at home, you know, kind of surrounded by our loved ones, our family, our friends, into the hospital, isolated and alone, in an attempt to try one more round of chemotherapy or some other experimental treatment. In fact, at the end of the 1950s, over 60% of all deaths actually occurred in the hospital. Now, in the hospital, dying became more technical, and the care decisions were placed on the medical teams. 
Is the fear of death is taking on such extreme forms. You can imagine that the patient himself who is dying suffers tremendously. And this is something we see in the hospital every day. The voice of beloved Elizabeth Kubler-Ross sharing her insights. She would go on to publish a number of works on death and dying. During the 1960s, disease was actually viewed as a problem that needed a solution. Doctors were reluctant to admit when treatments weren't working and then struggled to tell patients and their loved ones that any type of further treatment might actually do more harm than good. Nurses helped highlight the needs of dying patients through work funded by the U.S. Public Health Service Division. We were able to document the stark realities of institutional dying, basically that patient dying at the end of the hallway in pain. Nurses helped actually reverse this downward spiral of suffering. You know, our education's always been focused on holistic care, including the ethical and spiritual issues related to death and dying. Those hospital nurses saw firsthand the harm of aggressive cancer treatments. Leading the way, Dr. Florence Walt, an American nurse, and then Dean of Yale School of Nursing, was passionate about addressing the needs of those cancer patients. She gathered nurses and community representatives, all volunteers, to create the hospice movement. As early as 1966, Wald was firmly committed to hospice. In fact, she stepped down as the dean and worked to reform dying in New Haven, Connecticut. But those hospice advocates were at odds with research oncologists and had to fight to be accepted and obtain funding. Members of the Senate, members of the House, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today for the purpose of signing the Cancer Act of 1971. President Nixon announcing the allocation of $1.6 million in funding for cancer research. That's an equivalent of about $9 million in today's dollars. So the medical mainstream narrative was actually geared toward cancer treatment, with little emphasis on the plight of our terminally ill patients in hospitals. But in 1978, the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under the Carter administration, Joseph Califano, was at Yale to speak about this War on Cancer initiative. And while he was there, he met with the founders of the Connecticut Hospice, and he walked away so impressed with their program and passion that he promised to create a special demonstration project to look at the feasibility as well as the desirability of including hospice care as a covered service under Medicare. You know, it pays to have the right people in the right places at the right time. Along with the War on Cancer initiative, hospice was continually being redefined. The National Hospice Organization and the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement were navigating their differences on who, what, and when hospice services should be provided. Now, the National Hospice Organization wanted a medical supervision model. You know, that was an important political move. They wanted to ensure incredibility and waylay community and legislative fears about unsupervised nursing care. In contrast, the International Work Group was basing their model on hospice as a collaboration of many disciplines working as an integrated clinical team. They imagined the team would be composed of the patient, the family, and professionals, all with equal partnerships, preventing one discipline from trumping the other. 
Ultimately, the National Hospice Organization, now known as the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, NHPCO, had the most influence in designing the hospice benefit. This organization had the support of powerful congressional leaders, many of whom believed that hospice was one possible answer to the problem of long-term care for the elderly, despite the fact that hospice was initially created for cancer patients. So as you can see, the political stage was set and the policy window opened for this humane and cost-effective way to improve quality for terminal cancer patients. Senator Edward Kennedy was quoted in 1978 as saying, hospice is many things. Hospice is home care with inpatient backup facilities. Hospice is pain control. Hospice is skilled nursing. Hospice is a doctor and a clergyman coming to your home. But most of all, hospice is the humanization of our healthcare system. So in 1980, the Healthcare Financing Administration, now known as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, launched the demonstration project, ultimately known as the National Hospice Study. Now, the goal of the study was to examine the impact of hospice care on quality of life for the patients and the caregivers, at the same time collecting data on healthcare costs. 200 hospice organizations applied to be part of this demonstration project, and 26 were chosen to be in the study. CMS would pay these hospice organizations on a cost basis to provide the additional services to care for those terminally ill cancer patients. The interdisciplinary team was composed of nurses, aides, physicians, social work, and spiritual care. And with any type of comparative study, the demonstration project included 14 hospice organizations and 14 conventional care settings with um, things like high quality oncology teams. Now these groups would continue providing usual care. When the study was initiated, it was the largest study undertaken to evaluate hospice's potential as a healthcare reform. After three years, the study did indeed find hospice was able to manage patient symptoms and improve their quality of life, both at a lower cost and more importantly, with superior patient and family satisfaction. Now the estimates of cost were very sensitive to how long patients received hospice care. An important caveat at that time was that hospice saved money only if the average length of stay remained under 30 days. Now to better understand the history of the legislative efforts of this Medicare hospice benefit, I turn to former president and CEO of NHPCO, Mr. Ito Bannock. In his role, he had knowledge of the stories of the political climate during that time. Let's go back to where we were in the in the late 70s and early 80s. Medicare had only been around for 10 years, right? So it, it hadn't actually been that long. If you think about 10 years ago and think that that was 2012, that's that's essentially the, the amount of time that we're talking about. And it quickly became clear that there were some gaps in Medicare, right? And one of those gaps was related to uh, end-of-life care. And Medicare was spending an awful lot of money, still is, spending an awful lot of money um, for um, uh, end-of-life care. And, and, and at the same time, you had a lot of folks in the community who were really struggling. Uh, you had communities who really sort of demanded some change. And we, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, then Representative Leon Panetta, you know, kind of said, look, I was a, a junior congressman. I was sitting in my office and a group of folks came to my office and they, and they started talking about this 
hospice benefit and the, and the need for hospice benefit. Now, they didn't know at the time that I was struggling with that very same thing with, with my mom. There was opposition to this legislation, mainly based on the missing cost-benefit data. Despite intense lobbying by hospitals, home health agencies, and nursing homes, uh, the House passed H.R. 5180 on July 1982, and the Senate passed the bill by unanimous vote on July 22, 1982. This bill amended the Social Security Act to provide coverage for hospice services. And in 1986, hospice became part of the permanent Medicare benefit. So, I wonder what it looked like for the boots on the ground nurses. To find out, I turned to Dr. Betty Farrell. She is a national and an international leader in hospice and palliative care, beloved and respected by so many. She started her nursing career back in the late 1970s, right at the onset of the hospice movement. When I started as a nurse in 1977, you know, the word hospice didn't exist. And uh, the, the first hospice, you know, in America had just started about four years before, you know, one hospice program, you know, in Connecticut. And so by the time when I started as a nurse, there literally were, you know, less than 10 in the country. But I remember, you know, very vividly uh, around 1982, when I first started hearing about um, this thing called hospice. So I lived in Oklahoma at the time and I was a part of starting the first hospice in the state. Sort of a fun reflection, I worked for this home care agency and we wanted to start hospice and we put an ad in the newspaper, just a help wanted, you know, kind of ad in the, the Oklahoma City newspaper, you know, saying staff to work at this new hospice. And I remember, <clears throat> I was, you know, came back into my office at some agency and I had a phone call from the newspaper and the newspaper company, you know, the publisher was calling to say, you know, you have this ad, but we keep getting calls from people saying, well, what's a hospice? Still have it home. I cut it out and I saved it. So we had to, we redid the ad and we had to put a definition. And the other fun thing about it was people couldn't even pronounce the word hospice. So we had to put, you know, people would say hospice or hospice, what is this? And so we had, you know, written out how to, how to pronounce the word. That's how unknown it was. Dr. Farrell would go on to talk about how their teams would be surprised if a patient with heart failure or some type of advanced lung disease would be on their hospice census list. I guess it was rare that these types of patients would enroll with hospice since the benefit was designed for cancer patients. And I can attest, projecting life expectancy for someone with heart failure or COPD is incredibly difficult. So the hospice teams actually saw the need to care for those non-malignant diseases. A gap was noted and palliative care stepped in. Well, what do we mean by palliative care? According to the World Health Organization, and I quote, Palliative care is an approach that improves the quality of life for patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illnesses through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychological, and spiritual, unquote. Well, there's a lot packed in that definition. Uh, ideally, palliative care is an extra layer of support that focuses on symptoms but we've seen an uncoupling of palliative care services from hospice to fill the gaps 
in the needs of patients and caregivers that don't meet that hospice criteria, that less than six months to live or demonstrating continued decline as defined by the industry. In fact, palliative care has been one of the most rapidly growing fields of U.S. healthcare today. It's demonstrated all kinds of benefits for the patient, the caregiver, cost savings. Palliative care has been integrated into the hospital care, outpatient settings, and even specialty practices. It's based on the needs of the patients and the caregivers, not on their prognosis. And it's appropriate at any age and at any stage in a serious illness, including children. Most importantly, palliative care is available and is offered along with curative care. So for instance, if you have some type of lung condition, say COPD, and you're struggling with shortness of breath, palliative care can provide that support for the symptom management while the pulmonologists continue to manage the disease. In other words, you can have both pulmonary management and palliative care. It's not an either or. So Dr. Wayne Hollinger, a pioneer in palliative care services for pulmonary patients and my mentor, shared some of his insights from the past about palliative care. Some of it was a problem within the practice and some of it was that I think that it just felt felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, that we really, really did have an idea of fetal care and the fact that um, you know, sometimes we were doing things to people and not for us. The thing that was lacking with the fetal care concept was it, you basically were just giving up on people and not taking care of them. It's not that you were, you, you quit, you quit trying to fix them, but after that you should have then been taken care of. We kind of butted heads with some of the nephrologists and some of the oncologists. We'd say, you know, this patient is not benefiting from being on this ventilator and they're never going to get better. And their idea was, well, we never give up. Dr. Hollinger and his partners wanted to make sure that the pulmonary patients received palliative care, either the curative pathway or hospice. He's retired now, but he still speaks with passion about making sure pulmonary patients receive palliative care at the onset of their diagnosis, not just at the end. He was one of the first pulmonary physicians to advocate and support putting a palliative care nurse practitioner into their practice, which is where I've worked now for the last 10 years. This embedded palliative care model has me right there, working side by side with the pulmonary team, sharing information and ideas back and forth in real time. It's an amazing person-centered model that the patients and caregivers truly appreciate. Over the past decades, we have seen a transformation of the hospice and palliative care movement. What actually began as a very small, Voluntary group of individuals have become a recognized and essential component of our healthcare system. It's pretty phenomenal. The program was initially designed to save Medicare money, and the benefit is still a work in process. Patients at the end of life do represent a disproportionate share of Medicare costs. Plus, there is quite a variation across quality of hospice organizations. You know, some reports that they fail to visit the dying patient in the last days of life, where other organizations might actually create a huge gap in care with live hospice discharges, really leaving the patient and the family members in complete panic. We've seen an evolution of palliative care uncoupling from hospice and a growing phenomena of what that service is going to look like. In the next episode of this podcast series, we'll actually talk 
to a patient and his caregiver about their experiences with home-based palliative care and telemedicine pulmonary palliative care. What are some of the challenges facing our patients and caregivers, providers, and policymakers when dealing with palliative care and hospice services? Music Melody and Production by Elias Workman, Dorman High School student. Appreciate you liking, commenting, and sharing this podcast with others. Let's get this information out to your families and communities.